Welcome to Circulation on the Run, your weekly podcast summary and backstage pass to the journal and its editors. We're your co-hosts. I'm Dr. Carolyn Nam, Associate Editor from the National Heart Center and Duke National University of Singapore. And I'm Dr. Greg Hunley, Director of the Poly Heart Center at VCU Health in Richmond, Virginia. Well, Carolyn, our feature this week gets into inflammatory biomarkers in patients that have been hospitalized with COVID-19. But before we get to that, how about we grab a cup of coffee and work through some of the papers in the issue? Would you like to go first? Absolutely, with both the coffee and the papers. So, Greg, for this first paper, have you thought about concentric versus eccentric cardiac hypertrophy? You know, we traditionally associate them with pressure versus volume overload, respectively, in cardiovascular disease, both, though, conferring an increased risk of heart failure. These contrasting forms of hypertrophy are characterized by asymmetric growth of the cardiac myocytes in mainly width or length, respectively. However, the molecular mechanisms determining myocyte preferential growth in width versus length remain poorly understood. That is, until today's paper, and it is from Dr. Kapiloff from Stanford University and Dr. Rosenfield from UCSD School of Medicine and their colleagues. And what they did was use primary adult rat ventricular myocytes, as well as adeno-associated virus-mediated gene delivery in mice to define a regulatory pathway controlling pathological myocyte hypertrophy. And they found that asymmetric cardiac myocyte hypertrophy is modulated by serum response factor phosphorylation constituting an epigenomic switch balancing the growth in width versus length of adult ventricular myocytes in vitro and in vivo. Serum response factor phosphorylation was bidirectionally regulated at signalosomes organized by the scaffold protein muscle A kinase anchoring protein beta. This newly identified molecular switch controlled a transcriptional program responsible for modulating changes in cardiomyocyte morphology that occur secondary to pathological stressors. Very nice, Carolyn. So switches controlling this transcriptional program. Tell us a little bit and bring us back to the clinical relevance of this and starting with that concentric versus eccentric hypertrophy. Ah, I thought you may ask. The identification of a molecular mechanism regulating that asymmetric cardiac myocyte growth really provides a new target for the inhibition of pathological cardiac hypertrophy. Studies in mice using these adeno-associated virus-based gene therapies to modulate that signalosome really provided proof of concept for translational potential in the treatment of pathological cardiac remodeling and prevention of heart failure. Oh, wow. Very nice, Carolyn. Well, my first paper comes to us from Professor Dirk Westerman from Hamburg and focuses on cardiogenic shock patients and venoarterial ECMO the results from the International Multi-Center Cohort Study. So Carolyn, this study evaluated data from 686 consecutive patients with cardiogenic shock treated with VA ECMO with or without left ventricular unloading 
using an impella. And they conducted this at 16 tertiary care centers across four countries. They examined the association between left ventricular unloading and 30-day mortality. Huh, so what did they find? Okay, Carolyn. Well, left ventricular unloading was used in 337 of the 686 patients enrolled. And after propensity matching, 255 patients with left ventricular unloading were compared with the 255 patients without left ventricular unloading. In the matched cohort, left ventricular unloading was associated with lower 30-day mortality without differences in the various subgroups. However, complications occurred more frequently in patients with left ventricular unloading, like severe bleeding, which happened in 38.4%, versus only 17.9% in those without unloading. There was also access-related ischemia and renal replacement therapy. So, Carolyn, the take-home message from this international multicenter cohort study is that left ventricular unloading is associated with lower mortality in cardiogenic shock patients treated with VA ECMO despite higher complication rates. In the absence of randomized trial data, these findings support the use of left ventricular unloading in cardiogenic shock patients treated with VA ECMO and call for further validation, ideally in a randomized controlled trial. Very nice. Well, for my next paper, Greg, it's all about Desmond. Now, we know that mutations in the human Desmond gene cause myopathies and cardiomyopathies. Well, today's authors, Dr. Hermann and Schroeder from University Hospital Erlangen in Germany and Dr. Lillianbaum from University of Paris in France and their colleagues, report an adolescent patient who underwent cardiac transplantation due to restrictive cardiomyopathy caused by a heterozygous R406W Desmin mutation. Sections of the explanted heart were analyzed with antibodies specific to 406W Desmin and to intercalated disc proteins. Effects of this mutation on the molecular properties of Desmin were then addressed by cell transfection and in vitro assembly experiments. They further generated these Desmond mutation knock-in mice harboring the orthologous form of the human R406W Desmond. So, Carolyn, what did they find? Well, they demonstrated a novel pethal mechanism in which cardiotoxic R406W Desmond could adapt dual functional status with the abilities to integrate into the endogenous intermediate filament network and to cause formation of protein aggregates. This R406W Desmond modified the extrasarcomeric cytoskeleton such that Desmond filaments were not anchored to desmosomes anymore, thereby destroying the structural and functional integrity of intercalated discs. What are the clinical implications? Well, since these cardiotoxic desmine mutations could affect the integrity of intercalated discs, thereby inducing conduction defects and malignant arrhythmias, they suggest early implantation of pacemaker or cardioverter defibrillator devices may be considered to prevent sudden cardiac death in patients with these mutations. 
Furthermore, state-of-the-art basic molecular risk stratification of Desmond mutations may encompass a multidisciplinary experimental approach as exemplified by the approach taken here, which comprises assessment of the tissue pathology in conjunction with genome analysis and Desmond assembly studies, as well as patient-mimicking cell and animal models for the in vivo validation of these mutations. Oh, fantastic, Carolyn. Well, my next paper comes to us from Dr. Ravi Shaw from the Massachusetts General Hospital. And this study evaluated 2,330 white and black young adults, average age of 32 years, in the Coronary Artery Risk Development in Young Adults, or the CARDIA study, to identify metabolite profiles associated with an adverse cardiovascular disease phenome that included myocardial structure and function, fitness, vascular calcification, and then also mechanisms and other cardiovascular outcomes that would occur over the next two decades. Statistical learning methods, including elastic nets and principal component analysis, and Cox regression generated parsimonious metabolite-based risk scores validated in over 1,800 individuals in the Framingham Heart Study. Wow. What did they show, Greg? Wow, that's a lot of work. Yeah. So, Carolyn, the authors found two multi-parametric metabolite-based scores linked independently to vascular and myocardial health, with metabolites included in each score specifying microbial metabolism, hepatic steatosis, oxidative stress, nitric oxide modulation, and finally, collagen metabolism. Over nearly 25-year median follow-up in cardia, this metabolite-based vascular score and the myocardial score in the third and fourth decade of life were associated with clinical cardiovascular disease. And importantly, the authors replicated these findings in 1,898 individuals in the Framingham Heart Study followed over two decades such that young adults with poor metabolite-based health scores had higher hazard ratios of future cardiovascular disease-related events. Oh, wow, Greg. What an elegant study with both development and validation cohort evaluating the metabolome. Yes, Carolyn. So metabolic signatures of myocardial and vascular health in young adulthood specify known novel pathways of metabolic dysfunction relevant to cardiovascular disease associated with outcomes in two independent cohorts. And so these data suggest that efforts to include precision measures of metabolic health in risk stratification to interrupt cardiovascular disease at an earliest stage are warranted. Wow, so interesting. As are other very interesting articles in today's issue, there's an in-depth article by Dr. Andrew Lilo entitled The Antithrombotic Therapy for Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease Risk Mitigation in Patients with Coronary Artery Disease and Diabetes. There's also research letters, one by Dr. Sultan, on the long-term outcomes of primary cardiac lymphoma, and one by Dr. Wang on loss of phosphatase and tensin homologue promotes cardiomyocyte proliferation and cardiac repair following myocardial infarction. Great, Carolyn. Well, I've got a couple other articles in this issue as well. 
One is by Professor Ganesan Karthikeyan, who has an on-my-mind piece entitled An Alternative Hypothesis to Explain Disease Progression in Rheumatic Heart Disease. Dr. Stuart Chen has an ECG challenge entitled Alternating QRS Duration and Abnormal T-Waves. What is the mechanism? And then finally, Carolyn, a series of letters to the editor, one by Dr. Peterson and the other by Dr. Mehumud regarding the prior published article entitled Cardiac Energetics in Patients with Aortic Stenosis and Preserved Ejection Fraction. Well, Carolyn, how about we get onto that feature article and learn more about inflammatory biomarkers in hospitalized patients with COVID-19? Yes, let's go, Greg. Biomarkers are really playing an increasingly important role in cardiovascular disease and even in the current COVID-19 pandemic. There's been a lot of news about how biomarkers such as troponin may be prognostic. And in fact, we're all wondering about maybe even newer biomarkers. And in fact, today's feature discussion does bring to light one of the newest. And in fact, this is the first publication on the role of growth differentiation factor 15 or GDF 15 in COVID-19. We're so pleased to be discussing this with the corresponding author, Dr. Torbjorn Omland from University of Oslo in Norway, as well as our senior guest editor, Dr. Vera Bittner from University of Alabama at Birmingham. So welcome both. Tobjorn, could you tell us a little bit about GDF-15 and what made you look at it and what did you find? Yeah, so GDF-15 is a very interesting biomarker. It's considered a biomarker of biological aging, cellular stress, and perhaps also inflammation. And it has been studied within the cardiovascular field for some years now. And it has been shown to be a strong prognostic indicator across the cardiovascular spectrum, actually. So it is a new biomarker in one sense, but there are some data already in the cardiovascular field. But not in COVID. So this is the first study to really look at its prognostic value in COVID-19. So congratulations, Tobjorn, and if I may, also to the first author, Dr. Peter Mir, <laughs> a, a good friend as well. But please, could you tell us about your study and what you found? Yes. So when the COVID pandemic hit Norway in the spring, we thought that we should plan a prospective biomarker study. So we had a really fast track approval by the IRB and so forth. And we were able to actually cover most of the patients that were hospitalized in our hospital, Akershus University Hospital, which is right outside of Oslo. And it's a pretty large hospital by Norwegian standards. This covers about 11% of the Norwegian population. So in that period, when we were including, we had 136 patients hospitalized with the confirmed COVID-19. And we had biobank samples from 123 of, of these. And then there had been reports from retrospective studies, first from China, that seemed to suggest that Markers like cardiotroponin and an N-terminal probin P and ferritin were associated with outcome. But those studies were prone to selection bias in that the measurement were performed in the most sick patients. So in this study, we included all patients. And then we thought we should examine a broad panel of biomarkers. And that included interleukin-6, CRP, 
procalcitonin, ferritin, and D-dimer, cardiotroponin, and terminal proline P, and then GDF-15. Wow, thank you, Tobjorn. And even before you carry on with the results, can I just say, having visited your hospital in pre-COVID days, I can only imagine what a work of love this was to do it prospectively. Any particular experiences or to talk about that, to get a fast track, even in the midst of a pandemic, to perform a well-done prospective study, you know, that must have taken a lot. Yes, but it was interesting that the whole sort of population on Norway was very much into this. So it was from the highest political level, it was a decision that all the research on COVID should be prioritized. And like the IRB had like a 48-hour deadline for them to approve or not approve the studies. So that went surprisingly smoothly, I must say. Wow, that's great. So what did you find? Yeah, so we found that among these biomarkers, several seem to predict outcome. And the primary endpoint of the study was a combined endpoint of hospitalization in the ICU or death. And we found that also markers like cardiotroponin, BNP, ferritin, D-dimer, and so forth, in univariable analysis were associated with outcome. But when we performed um, more comprehensive multivariable modeling, then the prognostic value of some of these markers disappeared. In contrast for GDF-15, it seemed to perform very strongly, both on the baseline sample, and interestingly, also it increased in those reaching the primary endpoint during the hospitalization. So it provided very strong and independent uh, prognostic information also when we adjusted for clinical risk scores like the new score. So that was a very pleasant surprise to see that there was one marker that actually performed so well. The other marker that also performed well was ferritin. Very interesting. And so the new score being the National Early Warning Score. Thank you, Vera. I'd really love to bring in your thoughts. I mean, could you take us behind the scenes with the editors? What did you think when you saw this paper? As you know, I mean, a lot of journals have kind of been inundated by COVID papers. And so this one kind of stuck out to us because it's the first time that we had seen that anybody linked GDF-15 to you know, a COVID population, even though it has been out in the literature for, you know, ACS and MI prognostication and in healthy populations and in, you know, chronic coronary disease populations, heart failure and so on. So this is the first time that we've seen it applied there. And then, you know, I would echo some of the things that, you know, Torbjorn said that we were also impressed that it was prospective. Because when you look at some of the other biomarker studies, you know, what was prognostic in one would then not shake out in the other one because either you know different variables were included in the models because the populations differed and so to have something that you know was representative of the population that was actually admitted to this you know Norwegian you know, academic hospital you know kind of stood out to us and so we were excited you know to get this paper basically for circulation and hope that it also will be impetus for you know future research. Thank you so much for sharing that and for helping us publish such a beautiful paper. Did you have some questions for Tobjorn? 
Yeah, you know, so what stuck out to me is that, you know, you had this, you know, whole slew of biomarkers. And then when you looked ultimately at the final model, there were two that were standing out. And that was, you know, ferritin and it was the GDF15. And then when I looked at your graph, you know, I looked like not only did these biomarkers measure different constructs, but their time course also seemed to be different. And so I was just wondering whether you had thought about, you know, maybe using these to jointly model outcome and whether we might even be able to get more information that way. I think that's an excellent suggestion. And as you correctly point out, they do have different sort of profiles and ferritin being like an acute reactant having various sort of dramatic early rise, whereas we see that GDF-15 increased progressively during the course of hospitalization in the most severe patients. So I think uh, combining them is actually a great idea that we we should look further into. Very nice. And Tavion, if I could, I've got a couple of questions too. So 123 patients, 35 of whom had the primary outcome, right? So that may be sort of seen as, okay, is this too small? And they're all hospitalized patients. So could I ask, what do you predict may be seen in a larger population or outside of Norway or in a non-hospitalized population? So as you say, we were early with this report, but since it was submitted, there has been a couple of smaller studies that seem to confirm our results. So that is reassuring. But of course, we would like to have studied this in larger populations, and we are in touch with other biobank samples that could possibly confirm the data. So that's one obvious step. And then it's very interesting, as you say, could we sort of expand this to also apply to non-hospitalized patients? And I think that would be a very interesting hypothesis to test. And I think there's a pretty good rationale for this. And it's interesting that Lars Valentin and his group actually showed a correlation between the soluble ACE2 concentrations and GDF15. And so there might be that those with more susceptibility to COVID infections, actually, that, that, that is actually reflected by GDF 15 concentrations. But the challenge is how to sort of get a representative non hospitalized population. But interestingly, I was approached by some of the hospital staff that actually are in contact with the general practitioners and wanted to sort of implement this test also for this group. So Vera, you know, we're really grateful that Alan Jaffe was working with you in managing this beautiful paper. And if you don't mind me cheekily paraphrasing that you said you might channel him. (laughs) If you could, what would the channeled Alan Jaffe perhaps say about what's needed in this whole biomarker sphere in COVID-19? You know, hopefully, I mean, you know, channeling Alan is obviously difficult because he is such an incredible expert on, you know, biomarkers that I can't even pretend to be able to, you know, kind of see what he might be thinking. But it seems to me that one thing that we could all agree on is that it would be really exciting if, you know, something, you know, like the Get With the Guidelines, you know, COVID registry, you know, could kind of decide to, you know, measure this marker, you know, prospectively 
in the participating hospitals, for example, and then, you know, be able to, you know, look at this in a much, much larger, you know, population. I mean, especially with different, you know, ethnic backgrounds as well. I mean, I noticed actually to my surprise that, you know, this Norwegian study had a fairly high proportion of, you know, Asians, you know, in the sample. But, you know, that may not be, you know, the ethnic, you know, distribution that we might see in different regions of the US or, you know, different regions of the world. And so it would be really nice to, you know, incorporate, you know, the measurement of this biomarker in much larger data sets so things can be, you know, explored a bit further. That's excellent. And Torbjorn, if you could channel Alan, <laughs> what would you say? <laughs> that's, that's a difficult task, but I absolutely just can echo what Vera said. And I think the importance of prospective studies in the COVID biobarker field, I think, is of utmost importance. And just, I think, on behalf of both Torbjorn and I, and in fact, everyone in circulation, thank you, Vera, for the amazing work that you and your team do for circulation as well. Thank you so much for making the time to share your thoughts today. And thank you for that beautiful, beautiful paper, both of you. Thank you. Listeners, you've been listening to Circulation on the Run. Thank you for joining us from Greg and I. Don't forget to tune in again next week. This program is copyright the American Heart Association 2020.